0: hello welcome to science book shambles this is a new series of conversations with scientists and science authors in addition to the usual weekly sunday q a live stream and podcast and you can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles we really do need your support as much as possible we're trying to keep making loads of different things and due to the end of kind of all of our live work uh, patreon.com is the way that we're trying to fund ourselves at the moment so thank you very much and enjoy what you're going to listen to next
1: Hello and welcome to Science Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Nine Lessons and Carols for socially distanced people is coming up on December twelfth. It's an online 24-hour edition. It's a combo of all the cancelled Nine Lessons shows and the Christmas compendium of Reason. It's free to watch online. There are a few socially distanced tickets available to come and watch live as well at King's Place. If, uh, you know, if and depending on what the lockdown situation is by December twelfth, you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons for all of the details about the show and also how you can donate as well. The show, like the live shows, all the profits will be going to charity. So there's a crowdfunding you can give to and get some rewards as well. We've announced uh, 60 guests for the show. Now, 10 new guests revealed this week, including uh, the brilliant musician Nitin Sawney, uh the astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti, actress Rachel House, who you'll probably know from uh, Hunt for the Wilderpeople or Thor Ragnarok or the new Netflix series Stateless, Pete Etchells, Helen Arney and Steve Mould. So we announced Matt Parker already. So that's a full set of Spoken Nerds now. Lots of other guests as well that have already been announced. i Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield and Helen Chesky and Sophie ellis Baxter and Chris Jackson and loads of others. So go to the site, have a look at all of that. Donate if you can. Sign up to our Patreon if you can as well. That really helps us out with no live shows this year and who knows how long into next year as well. Subscribe to the podcast. Like it on iTunes. Give it five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called now. Same deal on Spotify. It all helps us out. Next episode of An Uncanny Hour, the Patreon-only documentary series that we are doing at the moment is out this Saturday. We look at Hawkwind in the 70s, the Space Rock Group. We chat to Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Stephen Morris from Joy Division and Stacia Blake, Joe Kendall, lots of other people on that as well. So if you sign up to the Patreon, you will get that in your inbox this coming Saturday. Now let's get on to this episode of science book shambles when our special guest is gavin francis who is a physician but he's also a traveler and adventurer and his new book island dreams is all about our connection humans connections with islands so here is robin and gavin Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles,
0: and uh, hello especially to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you very much. Uh, we're glad to, for anyone, all the people who listen to us, but all the Patreon supporters, it really does make a big difference, so thank you very much. Uh, and today, one of the books we're talking about is, uh, well, it. it it felt it, it was a wonderful book to be reading in a situation where we are some of us trapped in our attics um because it is a, a journey which looks at ideas of solitude and isolation and in particular how, our relationship to the island as uh, as a myth and a reality and it is island dreams by gavin francis hello gavin
2: hello there thanks for having me on the show now
0: I'm I'm fa- first of all I'm very the the last trip that I had before all of this stuff happened was to uh, the Isle of Lewis. Um and I went up there and I stood by the standing stones of uh, of Callanish and it you know and so when I started reading this and because the, as as you say in the book there's a kind of there's the dream of the island and the escape but there's the reality of the island as well and I know talking to people on on Lewis they were kind of saying you know there are people who come here in the summer and go i'm going to live here and then they move there and if you survive the second winter you stay there but most people at the second winter go yeah it's ended up being a lot wetter than we'd imagined and we're leaving so so that for you first of all your relationship with the island that that idea of the search for is it a search for disconnection
2: um yeah i think i'm interested in two different um threads that weave through the book the first is yes um, the the kind of cultural allure the cultural dream of that idea of island isolation why so many city dwellers do have that kind of experience that you describe you know and I think that is connected to um, the the fact that we still read Robinson Crusoe three hundred years after it came out we still listen to Desert Island Discs we still have you know there's Love Island on the telly there, there's this idea that islands are places of of a kind of where people can make imaginative leaps and they they kind of have a fantasy of what it might be like to cut themselves off from their distractions. So that's one of the threads that weaves through the book, that kind of cultural allure, which is really enduring like over centuries. And the other thing it does is tries to look at how that cultural allure kind of interweaves with my own path through life, going from being a doctor in a very busy city practice to these repeated episodes of quite, extreme isolation, um, working in places like uh, small Scottish islands, but also in places like Antarctica and in the tropics, in places that um, I have dreamed of getting away from it all, and then go on to explore exactly that paradox that you, you, you pointed out, that, that island living is not all it's cracked up to be from the people who visit for a few days in the summer. See, because I,
0: I found it interesting that of the of the the few that I visited. There's like one which is only a small island, and it's it's just off the coast of Devon, which is Lundy. I don't know if you've ever been to to Lundy. Um, no, I've not been to Lundy. Yeah, but uh, it, I know isn't it. It's great. It, it is. It's a lump of rock with with you know puffins. I think it's it's about two miles by half a mile. I think you know it's it's a. But what I found fascinating there was. A lot of the younger people who work there, kind of, you know, late teens, early 20s, and, and work in the pubs for when the tourists do come over are able to take the kind of the boat over and stuff like that, I would have imagined they were all chomping at the bit to to leave. But they were all of a mindset, all the ones I spoke to, which was they adored, that some people almost feel like they, they weren't born there, but they moved there, and now they they want to stay there. That, that level of, of, of solitude is something that they really feel that they've adapted to. Have you found that there is that difference? There are some where an island becomes something to escape from and there are some where an island is, is th- that that it's not a retreat, it's life as they want to live it.
2: Yeah, and there's another interesting paradox there, which is that it's very easy to get isolated in the city and in some of the islands that I'm discussing, you know, they've got very close, tightly-knit interdependent communities and so the community spirit is much stronger on a quote-unquote remote island than it is... Um, in many city communities. Um, Yeah, I think there's just different kinds of people. You know, part of the um, journey that that I've been on involved being a nature warden on an island in the Firth of Forth in Scotland, the Isle of May, which is just a few miles off the coast of Fife, near St Andrews. And that's similar to Lundy in the sense that, you know, it's a small bird reserve island teeming with puffins, all sorts of other birds. It doesn't have any... um, community there normally through the winter it's only got a community of scientists there in the summer scientists and, and, and ornithologists and I've found my time there my weeks there have been some of the most intense and the most rewarding of my whole life but I was in a very tiny community a tiny community of seven or eight people but they were all people who knew a huge amount about birds who loved um, that kind of separation almost from from the city and the world of the human they felt they were entering a world which is much more timeless, the world of the the rhythms of the birds and the seasons for a while. Um, And there were people there who'd been going back and spending five, six months every summer there for decades on that island. And they have almost like a migratory pattern themselves, like the birds. You know, they have a summer on the island and they have a winter back in the city where they write up all their research and do their scientific publications and so on. And then they go back into this, world of retreat and and silence and isolation and it's almost like uh the kind of modern equivalent of what the the you know the old irish monks used to do in the middle ages they would take off in their little boats and 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 stay in these very small remote rocky islands down the atlantic coast and i think there's not much opportunity for that kind of spirit that would like that in our modern world but um the kind of naturalist work that some of these island reserves offer uh, is the nearest modern equivalent that we can do it, and so you meet a lot of very um, um, uh, people people with a great deal in common, and uh, uh, that that have the same kind of dream of getting away from it all, but are happy to do it with other people too. Have you? How
0: is that getting away from it all? your definition of what that is you said you know that they were you know working in a city in in a in a very busy medical environment um at what point did you start to get the sense that this was not a way that you wanted to 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 live your life and and how did you start to think well these are what are the escape routes and which is the escape route that is going to suit me
2: Well, the book um, kind of charts this, maps this kind of obsession across 30 years, really, of my life going between periods of really intense connection as a doctor, often in the cities, and then these periods of retreat and isolation. And um, I find that I need both. And that's one of the tensions that this book tries to explore, because, you know, when I have been a long time in a very remote, isolated place, so, for example, when I was a doctor on a research station in Antarctica... By the end of that time I couldn't wait to get back to the city and all the possibilities of connection there, the plurality, the kind of dynamism of the city and all the things that you can do and the people that you can meet there but after a year or two working in the city particularly in uh, you know a very busy hectic job, I used to be an A&E doctor, um, the dream of getting away from all that and the sort of constant clamour of demand and the constant sort of stimulation become stronger and stronger. And so instead of trying to say one is good the other bad and um, switching them back and forward, I've tried to find a way in my life of experiencing both those extremes as as very valuable and try to find a way of combining them, trying to make a peace between that kind of tension. And that's, uh, yeah, what I hope uh, the book has achieved.
0: Well, I'm interested in that idea of the fact that for some would... Say going to you know a sparsely populated island that is the retreat, and yet for other people it's that busyness is is a retreat that that we you know as, as we found during this particular period uh there have been some of us retreat into trying to make as much as possible and do as much as possible, and we retreat into busyness, and other people have retreated into a kind of quietness. So it's an interesting definition that for for some people the the retreats what what d- defines a retreat is a polar opposite
2: yeah absolutely I suppose you know it's an old adage isn't it, it changes as good as the rest you know that that I find uh, that that I get my batteries recharged by each of these kinds of extreme experiences um whether that's going to Manhattan or spending a bit of time in London or whether it's going off and being on a bird reserve off the Scottish coast um, but there are different batteries, I suppose, that are getting recharged. It's a bit like um, uh, another tension that's animated my whole life, which is the tension between practicing medicine and writing books. You know, I do one of them one day, which is very intense. I speak to lots and lots of people. I'm kind of immersed in the complexities of other people's lives. And then the next day, I sit in the library in silence for a day and try to process it all and try to, to write uh, the most uh, elegant or concise sentence to convey it that I can. And so in a way, yeah, the going back and forward between medicine and writing and the going back and forward between the city and the island are two of these um extremes, I think, that we don't need to we don't need to choose one or the other. We just need to find a, a kind of a, a way of making a peace between them.
0: What do you find about the change in the quality of the voice in your head as you make that transition so for instance first of all the transition from what would be seen as urban busyness into a more kind of rural isolation
2: um, well it just quietens down really It just uh, everything just stills a little bit It's to do with the amount of demands that are placed upon you as well um, so one of the wonderful things for example about living in the Antarctic research station or living as a bird uh, reserve warden um, is the fact that so much of my daily life was physical work now you know i don't want to be a, i don't want to become a full time manual laborer um i would i would get too frustrated i think um in terms of all the in terms of yeah seeking out intellectual challenges and the creativity and so on but it's also a relief to do a bit of it it's like um it's like we've been discussing in all these other contexts, you know, to find a right kind of mixture in your life. And when I go and work as a warden or when I was out on the Antarctic station, a huge part of my day would just be like digging and repairing and building and carrying. And that kind of thing for periods of time, I found immensely kind of refreshing. But if it goes on too long, then I start to get a kind of itch inside my head. It's like, no, I need to be in the library, just reading and thinking again for a while. And similarly with medicine, you know, the, the, much of the work of medicine is, is kind of emotional work, is intellectual work. Uh, there's very little in the way of physical work involved. And after a long period of very intense medicine, um, I feel the need to just do something that can disengage my brain a little bit and re-engage my body. Because that's
0: because that that was Wittgenstein's thing, wasn't it? When when people wanted to be philosophers, Go, don't be a philosopher. Learn how to mend things and build things. You know, he was he he was he, he, you know the, the the predominant philosopher, I suppose, really of the 20th century, and and he was spent his whole time saying, don't get involved in philosophy. Learn how to build a wall and mend a car and find something and. And finding that balance, I mean, that's the intro. I, I presume for you, reading the book as well, that the, the balance is these transitions back and forth. But is there any point? Sometimes have you have you found yourself in an environment where you go, "This is a contentment that I can see lasting for longer than than most." Is there, is there? How, what's the nearest you found to that kind of the the, the what for you is that perfect balance?
2: Oh, it's an interesting question because, you know, we're changing all the time. My life is changing all the time. I'm in different phases of life, got a young family now. Um, I think I would give you, I had to give a different answer for different phases. I, I remember one time when I was in my early 20s, um, I was living on a small island in Greenland, and it was part of an um, international group of volunteers restoring an old um, mission church. And that was a time of extraordinary content in my life. I was living on this tiny island with just 10 other people. There was a lot of hard physical work to be done every day in um, restoring this old uh, mission house. But there was also kind of this wonderful conversation with these 10 other people who were from all over the world. So um, lots of kind of stimulation and engagement and that kind of dynamism that you get from living in a big city, but it was there on the island with me. and so that was a real kind of sweet spot. But again, you can never, you know, it would only last for a few weeks. You couldn't sustain something like that in the long term. In my own life now is that because I've got family, young kids and so on, is that I try to um, make the balance much more rather than doing long stretches on the island and long stretches in the city. I live a kind of compromise life. You know, I do a day of writing, a day of medicine turnabout um, and I uh, live in a place from which I can easily get to the city and I can easily get out on the water as well so um, yeah this sweet spot for now in my uh, mid-40s is very different from it was in my uh, early 20s and do you find when when
0: you uh, especially since the books come out people's expectations Of island life versus the reality. What have you found? Have been the uh, the 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 the, the most uh, shocking kind of realizations that
2: some people have had from from uh, from that? Um, Yeah, I mean, what you said about Lewis resonated a lot with me. I remember having very similar experiences when I I worked up in Orkney for a while, and Orkney has a similar uh, population of people that come or the summer, really love it there, and um, and find that the winters are just too hard. And there can be a wee bit of kind of censoriousness about that. You know, people are like, oh, well, they weren't tough enough, you know. But everybody's got to find, uh, uh, everyone's got to find a balance that works for them. And um, and this, if, if somebody's sort of dragging themselves through these series of very difficult winters, that doesn't do anybody in the community any good either. Um, so... I have found, yeah, in in, in Orkney, there's been um, very much that same um, experience that you described. Um, and also, you know, I, when, I, when I went all the way down, one of the islands that I discuss is Stewart Island in New Zealand, which is, you know, the southernmost part of New Zealand, well, almost the southernmost part. There's one tiny island a bit further south. Um, and what I found really interesting about that was here we were. We were at the opposite side of the globe. We were at the opposite side of what was once and um, the British imperial world, so it was settled by British people. They travelled the entire length of the planet in order to go and make a life there, and the people that settled the southernmost tip of New Zealand were all Shetlanders and Arcadians. It was amazing, they, like they travelled the whole world, they would crossed the tropics, they've got everywhere in the entire British Empire they could have chosen to uh, settle, but they chose the coldest, windiest, wettest, most extreme high-latitude part that they possibly could. And so I think, yeah, people have to find their own um, balance of what works for them. And clearly they just felt uh, that, that the kind of environment they wanted to seek out was the one most like their home that they came from.
0: For me, one of the things is access to the sky. And I think it's only in the last few years that I've, I've, I've realised how many people are starved of the sky. If you go into most cities and you, and, and you look up, and then you compare it to whether you're on lundy or lewis or whether or even just you know in in somewhere in australia somewhere without you know th- that point of first of all being able to see more light at night to, to to be able to observe it but also just going it does feel that that is a very very important relationship which a lot of people don't have but that 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 point of not feeling and and it, hemmed in is the wrong word because it's not hemmed in doesn't feel like it's summing up that bit which is the relationship with the sky which is lost if when you are living in a in a, in a highly urbanized area
2: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The horizons too. I mean, for me, that's connected very much to being able to see the sea. But I think you're, there's something in what you say, and that when you can see the sea, you always have um, a commensurate openness of sky to rest your eyes on. Um, and uh, yeah, I've told, I once. Um, I once drove across Australia on a motorbike. I remember I went from Perth to Sydney. And those kind of skies when you cross the interior of Australia are just phenomenal, aren't you? You have this kind of explosive sense of the immensity of the planet, possibly a little bit like being out out on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, um, uh, but slightly less scary somehow. Um, Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think there's
0: something in that. It's interesting because in, uh, they say that's one of the reasons that so many uh, Australian cinematographers win Academy Awards is because their relationship with light from a very. Because I, I found that I don't even know when it was. There was one time, one time that I was I was moving around Australia a few years ago, and there was a point of looking at the sky, which now I am perpetually in in, in awe everywhere I go, and I look up. And it's. And I don't know if it's. I was talking with someone who said that age comes into it as well. They they felt there is a point of of looking up and seeing the variety and getting a sense of immensity. That once you've had that sense of immensity once, uh, then it doesn't go away. You need it. Or yeah, you know, you have to have that relationship with the sky as well as with the land.
2: Yeah. No. I, absolutely. And when. Um... I alluded a couple of times to this time I lived in Antarctica. The part the part where I lived was just flat ice in every direction for hundreds of miles. And so, yeah, it's the biggest, flattest, emptiest, but most elemental space I've ever lived in. And, um, and yeah, there was a great piece there, the complete opposite, as you can imagine, of, say, walking down um, Broadway in Manhattan, where you feel so hemmed in on every side. There's also, there's a kind of, sublime grandeur to all those skyscrapers um, in the centre of the city too, but, but they make you feel tiny, whereas the um, there's something about the huge expanses of Australia or Antarctica that, that dwarf you, but they don't make you feel so small somehow.
0: That elemental side seems to be a, an important... I, I was thinking the, the philosopher Slavoj Žižek, I remember him talking once about the fact that our disconnection with uh everything with with where our food comes from where our you know waste goes to uh that all that, that that incredible disconnection of kind of how we live how we eat how we excrete or is ultimately going to be detrimental and I think it is you know that, that everything just becomes well you can just go and buy it or you turn that thing or you press that button and when you do move into a, a, a an island situation you can observe things you know a lot more closely can't you that that, that relationship between how you you live and where the waste of you goes
2: Yeah, it's really something powerfully that I've noticed in uh, Scottish small Scottish islands that I've worked on over the years as a GP is that there's a there's a relatability about the communities there there's a kind of visibility so you know you know where your postman lives, you know where the chief executive of the council lives, you know where the sewage works are, you know because the community is so small, all the parts that make society work are also visible to you in a smaller community. And that can be um, kind of comforting, reassuring to see how all the little parts that, that go to make the, the community work are, are, are there so evident.
0: Yeah, the the book, by the way, is also the, the quotations and the illustrations. There are, uh, I mean, I have to in in terms of your research uh, for for the, these beautiful. I mean, so, some of these maps that you have in there. So, are you someone who's had a uh, a, a map obs- as well as an island obsession? That obsession with the way that we've been able to century by century find different ways of charting the land and the sea uh, is is that something else that is a, a deep love?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's something I was so glad that the publishers chose to to run with that obsession of mine and to to um, reproduce so beautifully some of these ancient maps um, because. I do think that mapping is, mapping tells us much more than about the land. It tells us so much about the people who chose to make that map, what was important to them, what they miss out is really um, telling about what they think, what, as much almost as what they include. And I was fascinated by exploring, too, the way these different islands have been imagined over the centuries. So the, to be able to transmit that onto the page with such high quality production of the colour maps. To, and to be able to intersperse the text with those kind of maps is a real dream come true as well for me. It's very different from any of the other books that I've written. It's my fifth book, but it's the first time I've ever done one so heavily illustrated, uh, but where the illustrations as well were so vital in order to to make the text breathe and to give the text a kind of conversation on the page. So, no, I'm really glad that you appreciated it. Yeah. Well, I, I love the, the one of my fa- when you talk about
0: Thoreau's, uh, you know, Walden Pond. And you talk it of as an island in the negative. And to me, that idea of a pond as an island in the negative, there is something. And you have the be- beautiful uh, map there, the, 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 this, this, this yellowed map. I'm not sure where it came from or where you managed to find that. But that idea as well, the island in the negative, that to me is, a, is a, 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 immediately it brings, it, it brings that pond to a different sense of life than, than it's had before.
2: Yeah, absolutely. yeah and, and I had wonderful hours researching these maps and getting permissions for them. Many of the ones from the UK are from the National Library of Scotland who've got archives of maps going back to the 1400s. Um, the, all similarly, the Harvard Map Library, I think the one of uh, Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, that comes from the Harvard Map Library, and it's from Thoreau's time. Essentially, it was drawn around then. Um And you can see as well that many people read uh, Walden as a a, a retreat into the wilderness, and you can see he's very close to the town. Uh, He could nip back to town and have tea with his mother, which I think he did quite regularly. (laughs) I mean, as I said before as well, the quotations,
0: W.H. Auden, uh, where that that for Europe is absent, this is an island and therefore unreal.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so he was very clued into that idea that we – when we go to an island, we carry all this cultural baggage about imagining a kind of dreamlike separation. Um, and that probably helps us feel as if we're, we're cutting ourselves off from those kind of distractions. You know, when I first went to work on the um, uh, niche, the, the island that's a nature reserve, um, I come straight from a job as a very junior neurosurgeon in the city. A really stressful job, very difficult few months. and um, and I knew when I took up the job as a nature warden straight from that job in neurosurgery, I was imbuing this move with all these kind of dreams of what it would be like to, instead of have patients, just have thousands of birds that were my charges. And um, But that doesn't make it any less powerful, the fact that you know you're bringing a lot of cultural baggage to it. And um, although that Auden quote is actually about Iceland, I think it could stand for any of the islands I discuss in this book. This is an island and therefore unreal because you're carrying so much of your own ideas about islands to you when you go there brilliant thank you so much
0: gavin island dreams is out now canongate and uh we always we have so many canongate authors on we always have canongate people on. it's a uh, that's it, such an excellent um publisher but it is yeah it's, it, it was and it was a perfect time to read this book because it is you you are uh you you, you your eloquence in terms of taking us into those places when many of us are not moving very far at all uh it was you know it, it, it was a uh, i was going to debate it almost by saying it was a nicorette patch version of of of, of traveling but it's far better than that. Right. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Gavin.
2: That's the, the highest praise I could uh, get that put in the book cover. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd keep to the one from me and Sinclair. I think that's, yeah, that, 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 that's doing fine.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Gavin's book is out now from Canongate. Head to the Cosmic Shambles website to support us via Patreon or via the crowdfunder for the 24-hour 9 lessons event. New episode next week when our guest will be Stuart Clark, the astronomer. Until then, have a great week, stay safe, and maybe it's just me, but uh, things feel a little bit more hopeful this week.
0: Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.